0: You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Create Photography Retreat. You should join several of the hosts of the Master Photography Podcast Network, along with well-known photographers like Nick Page and Greg Benz at the third annual Create Photography Retreat. It's going to be held in Las Vegas, March 28th to 30th. And Brian and Rachel just announced that Zach Bradley is joining their staff with the sole focus of managing the models and the model experience of the conference. So if you've never shot models before, even if portrait work is not the thing that you're doing, you really have to give this a shot. I think you're going to find that you learn a lot about photography by stretching yourself and doing something that you don't normally do. And, and if you want to do that, you should come join us at the retreat. Um, as you're listening to this podcast here in October 2018, you've missed out on the early bird pricing, but tickets are on sale over at createphotographyretreat.com for the ridiculously low price of only $417. Head over to createphotographyretreat.com and get your tickets today. Welcome to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You're joined by thousands of photographers listening to the show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I'm Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and I'm joined by Brent Berger. Hey there, Brent. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Brent said he kind of woke up with a little scratch in his throat, so we hope he can make it through the episode. Oh, yeah, we'll probably be all right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, in this episode, we're going to go over an article from our friends over at petapixel.com. They have a fantabulous content or yes, fantabulous. I
1: love that word. I, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Fan.
0: I love their stuff. They have so many great articles that are just, super interesting. and make me think a lot about photography. And yeah. this is one that really made me think. And uh, so I'm, I'm really excited to go over it. It's an article from uh, Edward Krim. Edward is the director of the St. Louis Photo Authority, and he's a longtime photo instructor. And his article was titled, It's the Exposure Quadrangle, Not Triangle. And how do you pronounce it? Is it quad, quadra, quadrangle quadrangle? I don't know how you say it. Do you know, Brent? I would blur it because just like you did quad, quadrangle <laughs> quadrangle all right we'll go with quadrangle maybe, maybe um, there's too
1: much emphasis on the angle but anyway
0: and, and when I kind of shared this on social media because I, I really liked this article someone immediately was like why don't we just call it the exposure square why do we have to call yes. it the exposure quadrangle <laughs> uh, which is it's kind of funny because later on he, he, we talk about techno babble in a, a second so <laughs> it's really right. kind of interesting <laughs> but we'll have a link to the specific petapixel article in the show notes you want to go over to masterphotographypodcast.com to find those uh, or in your podcatcher. Hopefully there's a link to them in right there in the podcatcher. All right. So before we get into Edward's argument in the article, some really good, compelling things to think about where he's arguing that there should be four factors that we should be considering with exposure. I think we need to kind of talk just a little bit about the exposure triangle first. And Brent, you teach photography at a college. So I want you to take a minute here and tell me about how the exposure triangle fits into your instruction.
1: You bet. In my principal's class, so that's where students come. They have effectively zero experience, or at least that's the assumption that I make in that class. Total beginners. Yes, all beginners. So it's about helping photographers understand what they need to get a proper exposure. And also, I would add to that, the relationship between those items. Uh Uh, And what those items are your settings on your camera. And so it's about the controls of what the camera gives them to control. We look at one at a time. So initially, I'll tell them... You know, And you talked about this actually a little bit in a previous uh, episode about getting that exposure, and you were talking about exposing to the right, and how when you begin in, you're just always trying to hit that zero mark, and, uh, and that's on your light meter. So you understand you're getting an even exposure. You're not getting too bright. You're not getting too dark. You're getting an even exposure. And I would add, of course, what the camera thinks is not even exposure. Right, right. Anyway, that's another thing. There are some caveats
0: there for sure, yeah.
1: So I just tell the students to begin with, because I have uh, what I call basically an icebreaker type assignment, because I don't want them to feel intimidated by the camera. I don't want them to come in. Well, they do come in a little bit fearful, a little bit like, (laughs) I have no idea what I'm doing. And so we have an assignment that literally has zero anything to worry about creativity or anything like that it's all about getting to know the camera and i just say here are your controls find out where those buttons are find out where those knobs are whatever it is that t- takes these controls and i don't care whatever settings you had to get to get that dot on the center zero mm-hmm, mark mm-hmm. that's what your goal and so they go out and they shoot whatever in fact i require them not to shoot a level or straight on picture they have to shoot something that's just really off the wall and you know, stupid, crazy kind of a thing. Okay. And so that's all about just getting their feet wet with the camera and understanding just this isn't something that is, you know, fearful and and is going to conquer them. They are going to conquer it. So it's getting used to it. And so they just keep moving those settings until they get that magic zero mark. Then we dive into what those numbers actually mean. And so as the weeks progress, it's a 10-week course. So as the week progress, I'll take the approach – that allows them to simply get familiar with the camera uh, further, and then we go into what those things actually mean. And so, of course, what we're talking about is shutter aperture and the ISO setting. I usually tend to start with ISO, and the reason I do that, we tend to shift that around the least. I think that's becoming more and more acceptable to shift around more freely as the technology is advancing we're not as concerned, I guess you could say, about going up to 400 ISO or uh-huh, 800 right. ISO. The, the quality is still good uh, when we go up to those areas. And so I give them tips on what to set for which type of lighting, So, such as outdoors, bright and sunny, cloudy or indoors, that kind of a thing, as it relates to the ISO starting point. And then we'll go on to uh, aperture settings, and we talk about what those mean and what's happening there. And then we go on to shutter. And I usually leave shutter for last because in my experience, it seems that this is like the most revealing to students. You know, when they start to understand uh, shallow depth of field and long depth of field, that's not really the aha moment that's as strong as when they learn to really Uh control their shutter. Because then they have the power of time, and they can control time. And that's really exciting for them. And so when they become masters of the shutter control, they see the power of what's available and what they can do. And so that's why I leave it to last. It relates also to their understanding of just how everything then comes together. Because we then wrap it all around a course saying, it's all about understanding the whole thing. So we want to control all of them at the same time, but then we look at them separately as it relates to, okay, this is why we want to give emphasis on this setting over that setting depending on what the goals of your of your photograph is so that's what the exposure triangle is it's about bringing those three items iso aperture and shutter and understanding the relationship between those items and how they control light how they modify the light that's coming in and how you can then uh, control certain aspects of what is going to happen in your picture according to those settings.
0: Yeah, and I, I like, so the way that you just explained it, so the same way that I've thought about it and I've taught it to, uh, I, I, you know, I've taught some courses to some teenagers, for example, which means that they've had even less experience. Like, they all have smartphones, so they're right. all very used to like taking the smartphone and just, you know, holding it up, click the button, and out pops a pretty decent photo these days. It's amazing how much yeah. smarts is built into those smartphones and, and how much processing it can do all by itself. Um, to adjust these things, but they don't, they have no clue what's behind that. They have absolutely right. no idea what is there. And so, so most of the time when I've had, it, it's because they've enjoyed taking pictures with their smartphone. They've really, mm-hmm. They really, they like it. And they're like, you know, I think I'd like to really figure out how to use a, a camera and do this and, and get better at this. So I've taught the, the course now a few times, a teenage start photography course. And um, it seems the the struggle, like you, you talked about, it, I liked your, your first assignment, trying to make it so that, they're not overly concerned about exactly what they're shooting. It's not yeah. the point of it. It's trying to figure out how, where are the buttons, the knobs? What do you have to do to, to try to make it so that you can get an exposure? And just the, the whole idea of exposure overall and right. making sure that they kind of get it. Because anyone can look at the results from a smartphone and say, well, why is it so dark? Or Man, that is really, really bright and washed out. And they, sure. you know, everyone has this rough understanding of exposure right off the bat, um, and and they can understand when it's kind of looking like it's properly exposed or not. The details of how they get there is, is the whole mystery and the whole problem, and why we've yeah. we've gone to these like symbols, these things to try to help uh, everyone remember them as they're starting to do it. So, a triangle because there's three of them. Yeah, a triangle right. makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> about how you're going to represent this and a learning tool to help with that. That there's three things to consider as you're going, like three control things you have in the camera to help you navigate through how am I going to make the scene that I'm taking a picture of properly exposed. So it's a very natural kind of thing, which is why it was so interesting to me that we have Edward here saying, no, it's not three things, it's four. And and we're going to get into what it was exactly about it, but the the whole point that he's making is that it's about the light. That's where it begins and that's where it ends. Is the light? That's mm-hmm. that's yeah. what makes photography is light. And our triangle has no count for light. It doesn't. There's no <laughs> concept of it really within the the triangle. And it, it's a it's kind of a thing. you have something to say there, Brent.
1: Yeah, I think the the triangle if if that's all you look at and and this is why this topic is wonderful and we're going to dive in pretty good here. Yeah, yeah. The triangle assumes that light is constant. Right, right. And and that's and that's the point I think that we just need to start with is just saying this is where the author is saying we need to understand light isn't constant. We need to understand what other things are going on to make this happen. And yeah, that's that's just when, when you have that, um, I guess, not. it's not really a realization, but when you don't take it for granted that light is a constant, that's when it really starts to really make sense, I think.
0: Yeah, and, and the reality is light is a part of the exposure triangle because yeah. we are using the light meter in the camera. We're trying right. to put it on zero. Yes, we are factoring light into it. And the yeah. three controls we have for shaping it and, and figuring out how we are going to record that light there's only three of them that we can actually change. We can't, well, okay, you can change the light in the scene <laughs> yeah. with flash. And, and we've talked a lot about how with portraits in particular, that's such a powerful thing because now you can really control your scene and, and create a photograph. Right, and, and that's right. really cool. But yeah, if you're taking a landscape, um, you know, in some astrophotography scenarios, also, you can add some low levels of light to, to try to illuminate like the foreground in a Milky Way shot, something like that. But we're, right. light ambient light is a factor as we take the photos. And even in the as we consider a triangle, it's still accounted for because we are using the light meter and telling them to how to adjust to try to get it on zero in that, in that light meter. Okay. But right. let's talk now about, let, let me show, I want to, I want to go over a quote from the sure. article. We're going to have a couple of these and, and I'm going to have, have you uh, give me some reactions to it and, uh, and we're going to walk through this. All right. So one sure. of the, the first quotes that I had in there that I thought was really cool. I just, in fact, this was such a good quote. As soon as I read it, which is like right at the top of the article, I stopped reading right there and I went and shared it on social media because it spoke to me. I really love this, this quote. So, all right, here it is. Some of these articles, and he's talking about the exposure triangle articles where people are teaching photography by means of that. He says they are obscure and pedantic. And as my friend Shaw would put it, indulge in technobabble to impress the reader with the writer's expertise. Others make a sincere effort to communicate important information to the reader, but all of them fail to acknowledge that beyond ISO, aperture and shutter speed, there is a fourth part of the exposure equation, the part without which there would be no exposure at all. And that part is light. So what what do you, what's your reaction to that, Brent?
1: Uh, yes, this is great. Uh, for me, this is when the Zen of photography effectively sets in. And this is the reason I love photography, and that is... I really love that techno stuff, and that is awesome. And I love his, uh, impress the reader with writers the writer's expertise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, if that's your goal when you're writing that or when you're talking about that, to kind of puff yourself up, so sort to of speak, uh, you got to be able to, my opinion is, you got to be able to uh, bring the rest of it to the table. And if you can't, then that's the other part of it that falls off. And this is what he's talking about, the light... Is what it's all about and the photography has that equal balance for me that that awesome Zen part the art side and then the techno side as well yeah and certainly I love the art part and that's what we're talking about here uh, getting those techniques figured out getting the technical stuff figured out so then we can master them we can control them and we can achieve our point with the light that we're given or in the case of flash photography like we kind of mentioned we can bring light into that subject and into that scene. But it's also one of those, I think, forgotten subjects. And I I talked about just a little bit ago about how it's something we tend to take for granted, so to speak, the triangle assumes it's a constant. And of course, we need light to have photography. That's what the whole point of the photo part of the word photography is about. It's referencing the light component of that. However, taking that for granted is too easy to do. And that's how I think I interpret what the author is saying here, bringing that other part back into it so, there's other reasons, I guess, where we can consider someone to be an expert. It's not just those
0: technical things. It's also the art side of it. So, when, when you you had those beginning classes, and you're starting to teach photographers how to do things. And most of our listeners are, are beyond that point. They've, they've, already sure. been, they've already started a good way through it. Most of them feel like they have the exposure triangle mastered pretty well, uh, which yeah. is great. That's a good place to be. But it made me think, as I have taught this, like... I probably could have done a better job of emphasizing right at the get go before we ever talked about shutter aperture. I things that they don't, they don't even know what those words are. Right. I should talk about what we are doing is trying to record light and yeah. it's, it's a challenge in a lot of situations to figure out what you have to do. So you record that light correctly and you can end up with the photo with the light recorded in a way that's useful and pleasing. And I just have never approached it that way. It's kind of why I think I liked that this whole emphasis and the way that he's, he was suggesting we should think about things, even for someone who's probably past this point of beginning part of the journey it's a good thing to go back and, re- and and make sure that you really have a firm understanding of that. But this is all about the light.
1: Yeah. One of my lectures, it's about, oh, it's a 10-week course. So it's about maybe six or seven weeks in. Uh, one of my lectures is titled Light the Essential Element. Uh-huh. And we just dive into, okay, now we understand what all these things mean and what the what the different lens factors mean as far as if you're going to be shooting wide-angle or telephoto how that affects depth of field we understand those mechanics uh we understand how it affects the subject and how we want to apply those to what we want to communicate about the subject but we got to bring it back to the light and so that's why i bring it back in that even the principles class i don't wait till my intermediate or my advanced class Uh, they got to know it's about the light and you have the power to, uh, exercise whatever it is you can do to make that image the best you can make it according to what, and I love the quote from Ansel Adams when he was asked, you know, what is it that you try and do when you can, when you take a picture, he tries to communicate what he, what he saw and what he felt. And so it's about, it's about that. And if you can do that at the end of a 10 week course, then hallelujah! That's awesome. I've succeeded in in some respects.
0: Uh, most students can do that, and that's that's really great to see. Yeah. Okay. So so I, I just love the message that we all need to make sure that we we kind of start there. We need to say it's about capturing this light. We and it's another misconception or thing that we we say so easily many many times about there's good light, and then. Not really any definition. I mean, I heard that over and over and over as I yeah. was getting into photography. You need good light. Well, what exactly is good light? What, <laughs> what does that mean?
1: I, I use a different approach. I say appropriate light. Okay. And it's about whether it's appropriate for the subject and what I'm trying to achieve. And,
0: and I think so, it's it, that's, that's something that comes, I don't know if there's a great way, maybe. It, how do you feel like students receive that? Does, does it take the 10 weeks to get there where they, or by the end of the 10 weeks, do they seem to understand that and, and have an appreciation for kind of what makes up good light?
1: Well, certainly we have all sorts of interest levels coming through the class yeah, students yeah. that are taking it because it's required and some because they want to, that kind of a thing. But the class usually is between 45 and 50 students. So I've got a big class and, uh, usually, and it's, I would say most of them, yes, they, they start to have that appreciation. They go a little further with it. They, they have that greater understanding of what it takes to have whatever it needs from them to create that, an image that, you know, is received well, is, is good and is interpreted well. Uh, We also, as we're learning what those different settings are, whether it's the shutter speed, the ISO, and the uh, aperture, I'm also having them look at different design, very gentle, but different design elements, whether it's uh, focusing on patterns, Uh focusing on rhythm in the image. We're focusing on these other things as well. And so it's kind of a two-pronged approach where we're going to say, okay, let's tackle this technical thing, but let's also uh, bring in this very... Uh, almost rudimentary sometimes plain uh, creative idea. Uh, one of them is to ser- just simply search for shapes. You know, if you go around searching for circles, squares pick a shape and search for it as you're out shooting uh, they're playing with then that th- those notions of how can I be creative with this other challenge of saying I have to limit myself to just this item but it also helps in their exploration so uh, we have the the projects I have them do address the the technical side for sure, but it also totally does not forget the creative side. And by the time we get to the end, it's almost all creative. Uh Because the tech the technical stuff they just know. And so then it's about uh my last assignment is about storytelling. And so it's all about, okay, you know all that technical gobbledygook. Now it's time for you to tell your story. And they go out and they pick a story to tell and they have to sequence the images and all that good stuff. So by the end, yeah. A high a high majority of them definitely get it.
0: And I think that's... It's the realization that has made my photography improve a lot was understanding how I can leverage light as a factor or a component of creating my image. And yes, certainly flash, when you can control it, you can see it in portraits then. And that's what, what makes your portrait work stand out from the smartphone shot that, you know, it can just do such a good job of getting a good exposure. Um, when you can add the light yourself and take control over it, you can see, you just, I started to understand what made the light look good for the, the image I was trying to produce and create. And that's a totally different thing than just capturing the light <laughs> you're yeah. you're using the light to creatively get there to, and and have it look like you want and it's it's so powerful when you can get to the point where the settings are a factor. You have to understand how to control your camera. But when it's finally to the point where that's not dominating your thought process anymore as you're taking mm-hmm. a photo, now yeah. you can incorporate the light. And uh, if it's a natural setting and you, you are gonna use natural light in a landscape shot, then understanding or, or knowing how you're gonna get light that looks different A sunset sunrise that where it's not that way all the time, all the day. And that's what people really enjoy is seeing shots that they don't always see and have a regular basis on. And then how do I use my camera as a tool and the settings to capture that light? That's what makes it good light at that point, because you're Mm -hmm. realizing your vision. You're creating something that a lot of people don't see all of the time. And, uh, and then it becomes a powerful tool to be able to help you with your photography. Okay. So, so with all that said, let's, let's go a little bit deeper into the, what is the quadrangle then? And <laughs> we've, we've talked about why we as photographers should consider light as part of the equation of getting good exposure. But Brent, I want your thoughts on what exactly it means then to have an exposure quadrangle instead of triangle what does it mean to consider light as part of getting a good exposure? Maybe I liked the way he went through in the article and he used kind of the example of the sunny 16 rule to illustrate his point in a good way. So maybe can you walk mm-hmm. us through the, through kind of what you, you took from the article as being the quadrangle?
1: Sure. And as we look at the sunny 16, what we're looking at is on a standard sunny day, you would uh, take that, certainly you, you look at taking light into the equation, uh, might be able to say it's, we're taking light as a first and foremost element of that equation. And so on a sunny 16 day, we have the idea that it's a bright and sunny day. We set the aperture of the camera to 16, and then that base uh, shutter speed that we're going to start at is based on our ISO. So if we have 100 ISO set on our, our camera, we would use a 100th of a second uh, on the shutter. And for the most part, on you know, most sunny days here on planet Earth, that would be considered a decent exposure. Certainly you're gonna have differences, uh, but this is just that rule of thumb idea. Uh, so that's a starting point. And so what we've done here is we took that light into account first. And again, I think it's almost always that we do this uh, but this is just a simple approach that helps illustrate that whole point of what we're talking about with this quadrangle. Uh, it's, it's setting up you know, a very hard and fast set of rules almost that says, okay, you know, this is how we're taking light into account first. Uh, in other situations, we w- would probably react differently depending on how much light we're talking about, though. Uh, but it's the same idea because we want to take light first and then we go at it with
0: the settings based on what the light is okay and so this this as a as a beginner when i heard about this rule i was think it, it, i took it for granted that 16 was just how you had to set the aperture i was wow. like okay so the rule says super super bright outside you set your aperture to 16 <laughs> uh-huh. and and okay all right and then iso 100 and and shutter speed 1 100th and great that gets you really close to zero on that exposure meter and um or the light meter, and and that's a, a, a fine way to start it, but that doesn't account for like your objective or what you're trying to do right. with your shot, and right. um and it's kind of where I think he he was I think he was trying to illustrate this as as making that point that. The, these are, are ways to make it so that you will, given the lighting, and that's where he started from, we have this massive amount of sunlight in the scene, and we have to account for that. Like that's, that means we have certain limitations that we're going to have as we try to take a photo and get a proper exposure here. If you started at an aperture of 2.8, now we, we, are, we don't have a lot of other options to get make it so that we get a good exposure. We um, because we're going to have the the ISO if we increase it is going to make the problem worse. We have this massive amount of light and we've we've uh, opened up the aperture so wide to let so much light in. We've got to find now we have only the other two controls to try to limit the amount of light coming in. And ISO, you can't go any lower. You're limited there. And shutter speed. Yep, we can certainly increase the shutter speed from one one hundredth of a second. We can start cranking that up and you can go cameras today. It's like one eight eight thousandth of a second is a pretty good maximum on the shutter speed for a lot of cameras. But even that's a limitation now is 2.8, given the number of the amount of light, ISO 100 and a shutter speed of one eight thousandth of a second going to be enough to make it so that we don't end up with like a photo with pure white (laughs) in in the shot. And so considering the light and what controls we have for dealing with that light. That means it's a that makes it the quadrangle then at that point and uh, and that's an important factor as you're doing it your objective as you shoot the photo if you're not shooting a landscape scene you're out in the very very bright sunlight you may have to go to something like uh, a a modifier that you're going to hold over them, something to block the light out or go in the shade. If you're taking a portrait, something like Mm -hmm. that, because you don't have enough controls to deal with that level of light in the photo. Or conversely, if we have a super dark scene, you're shooting the Milky Way. You want to try to get the Milky Way in a shot. Now we have to deal with a significant lack of light. And you can't even add light to the situation (laughs) because you're shooting something that is light years away. You have no chance to try to make that thing brighter. Um, So now we have the opposite problem. We have to figure out how do we try to get the best image quality we can with the controls we have and letting light in. The stars are moving. You have a limitation on the shutter speed. Therefore, the aperture, we only have so wide open that we can go. The ISO, when you take it up too far, you have lots of problems with dynamic range and noise. There's limitations, and but it's all has to do with the light and how much light we mm-hmm. have to deal with. And uh, so, I love the concept of teaching it as a quadrangle instead of a triangle so that we emphasize the factor of light being in part of the equation rather than than the normal method where we just don't really consider it that much, even though it is naturally taught because we are going to use our light meter. It's something to make sure we are actually thinking about is the light. And should I do something besides the three settings that will help me with the light? That's a good, a good process to go through. Good. Yeah. All right. Now some more, some more concepts that he went through in the article that, that again, really cool article. You really should go read it for yourself. And, and uh, I, I loved it. Um, so there's, there's another sentence that he has in the article that I really want your help deciphering because it didn't quite make full sense to me as I read it. And I, I want to go through an example. I want to set up a, a scenario here where we're going to use this sentence from his article. So I want to say we're shooting outdoor sporting event a couple of hours before sunset. So not, not direct midday sun, but it's starting to head down. We got a couple hours before it's going to be down. So um, y- you have a fair amount of light, good light, maybe not so harsh on the subject, which is like an ideal situation for an outdoor sporting event. That'd be good. You're wanting to freeze the action. So we have that objective. We want, we don't want to show motion in the the shots. You could, uh, you could decide that the uh, athletic event or outdoor sporting event, you might want to show that motion, but we're going to say our objective is we want to freeze the motion. Um, So that means you're going to have a a pretty high shutter speed. Uh, We want background blur if we can get it. That's secondary. We want to freeze the action as the primary goal, but we want background blur if we can get it. That always makes the photos look a little nicer and, and makes the athletes Uh, pop out from the background better. It looks good. So we want to open up the aperture as much as we can. And then traditionally in the exposure triangle, we've talked about two of the three now. And and because of our objectives, we have some very specific settings that we want to dial in. Now we have ISO that's left. And with digital cameras, we want to keep that ISO as low as we possibly can to get the very best image quality. So bright sunny situation, we can probably put the shutter speed, maybe even all the way up to one eight thousandth of a second. That's going to absolutely freeze the motion. No problem there. Uh, open up the aperture. Maybe we can go as much as four, 3.5, two point. It kind of depends on exactly how bright is that sun right now. But, but something along those lines, something with a lower aperture number there, open it up wide. Uh, ISO 100. We have enough light to make that work. Let's, let's say we can go 2.8, 1 8,000th of a second ISO 100. And you start, you dial in those settings. The light meter says Looks good. We're right on zero. Excellent. Maybe even check the histogram and adjust slightly from there because the histogram might say you even have a little bit more room. Whatever it is. We've arrived at our settings. We've set it up. And then some nice fluffy clouds roll over <laughs> and these aren't the rain kind of clouds. They're just overcast clouds and enough that they are kind of, they're blocking the sun for sure. They're modifying our light now with the sun yeah. and it's changed the level of light that's available to us. All right. So with that setup and that situ- that scenario, here's the sentence from Edward's article that I want your help with Brent to kind of decipher it says if clouds roll in and your light fades, that fourth part of the exposure quadrangle requires a readjustment of the other three and a new EV will reign. So tell me what you're you're interpreting that to mean.
1: Well, that's exactly right. He's basically said we have an adjustment of one of those items that's on the quadrangle and the way that the quote is spe- is specifically uh stated here, you know, really I guess depending on how much that light has changed, I don't know that you have to change all three. Uh, You have to change at least one of those three. So one of them has been adjusted, and so at least one of the others must also be adjusted to get what we would consider a proper exposure. Uh, certainly another thing to think about is the quality of the light has changed. So it's, it's very different. So it was uh, a more direct light, and now it's rather soft and diffused, and you mm-hmm. won't have those deep, filled-in shadows. So that's just another thing to kind of sort of think about. Uh, so they'll, you know, we use the, uh, would use the term, they open up a bit. So the shadows might open up a bit. They won't be so dark comparatively to the, the previous lighting scenario. So in that situation, you could possibly get away with increasing your ISO to accommodate that drop in light amount. So you're making your uh, sensor effectively more sensitive to light. And the reason I say you possibly c- could get away with that is if you're really concerned about that maximum technical detail and you want as much dynamic range out of it, well, since we've opened up those shadows, our dynamic range is not as uh, critical Uh, with that softer light. So sure, bump your ISO up and see if that'll work out for you. Uh, What we want to think about too is, uh, this definitely comes from experience. So uh, if this is your first time out there doing something like this, you know, certainly experiment with it, see what happens. Uh, You still run the risk of digital noise buildup when you do that. So just, you know, pay attention when you get into post-production and see what's going on there with all those different uh, risks if you want to call them with digital noise you have so y- you make the best decision that's for the needs that you have at the moment and your mo- and your needs you have at the moment you stated jeff was to freeze yeah, the right. uh freeze the action yep and so i actually tell my students because i have an assignment that forces them if you will to uh explore these items they need to freeze action and just have it you know frozen or they also then need to, in the same assignment, blur the action. Uh-huh. So blur whatever subject it is. And in both items, it's easy on the blurred, but on the frozen action, it needs to be obvious that action is happening. So like if you were to photograph a car driving down the street and you froze it at 1 8000th of a second, what's to say that that car just <laughs> isn't parked <laughs> It there? looks parked, yeah. <laughs> we don't have any obvious you know, clues here that action is actually taking place. So that's really the challenge that they have is showing that there's some kind of action but then what i tell them is to say what would you rather deal with a little bit of noise or maybe a lot of bit of noise or missing the shot right because that's really what it comes down to sometimes if you're shooting sports and your goal is to freeze the subject and you think to yourself i can slow my shutter down a bit well my question back to you is can you because maybe you won't be able to achieve the point you're going for and so iso or aperture adjustments are needed to keep that fast
0: shutter speed so you keep that subject frozen Right. Okay. And and the, the way, the thing I like about that quote, the new EV will rain. That's the thing that we're having to react to, right? The, the overall level of light that we have, we're now recording as we take our photos has lowered. And therefore we need to respond. We have to find a way and you need to respond in a way that keeps your creative objectives in mind. I stated what they were in our example for a a really specific reason, because the stopping the motion is the most important factor in the shoot. That's what our goal is creatively. That is what we want. You could respond to the change, the drop in light, the overall EV change in any of the ways. You could absolutely take the shutter speed way down and not stop the motion anymore. But that's not what our objective is. That's a, sure. a valid way to deal with the light changing. But that's not that's not where we are going. So it, yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> There's uh, the, the chance potentially also to where if that... The, the scenario you set was that we're a couple hours before sunset. And it, it for some reason, it just flashed back to a couple of years ago. I was photographing our local baseball team. Uh, we have a, a regional league of some sort. <clears throat> and um, my objectives had to change when that sun set. While they yeah. still have lights on the field and I could really blast my ISO, uh, that, that was where it went too far for me. Uh-huh. And I actually got some really good, I think, uh, blur shots, and that is of the pitcher going and the runners running and all this kind of thing with your standard stuff at a baseball game. And so it's it's just the fact that I then had to react to the fact that so much light was taken out of the scene, uh, I just couldn't achieve my goals anymore, so I changed what my goals were.
0: Right. Sure. And, and totally, I mean, we're the photographers, we get to do that unless you're on assignment, like your students have an assignment, then, then of course they've got to go meet the assignment. But, um, as we're shooting, it's, it's so, uh, important to have your creative objectives be the thing that you're trying to accomplish. And that's, that's the mark of where you have entered into being a, a good photographer in my mind. It doesn't matter if you have the fanciest gear or if you're shooting manual all the time or none of those factors matter a bit to me, the mark of of someone that's mastering the art of photography is they can now focus a lot more on the creative elements of what they're trying to accomplish as as they're taking a photo. And the technical parts of it are there. They're always going to be. But they're easy enough and take little enough thought <laughs> that you, it just sort of happens as you go to yeah. do it, which takes a lot of experience. So if, if people are, if there's listeners out there that are so worried about like, I, I'm not there, I'm not I'm struggling so much. I, I have the exposure triangle down pretty well, but I got to really focus on it and think about it as I'm doing it. That's okay. That is a massive part of this path. That is something that you have to go through. I'm still very much in the midst of it I to the point where it's not dominating my thoughts anymore. Um, but I, I still absolutely have to think about it. And I'm, I know I need more experience. I got to spend more time doing it so that it becomes second nature. The other thing that disrupts this a lot is people upgrading their equipment. You, you have this muscle memory, you start building up with your camera and the more time you spend shooting your camera, the more that muscle memory builds up and the less thought you're going to have to have, the less it takes to go and change these settings. And that really helps. I, I think a lot of photographers make a mistake and they jump to new cameras too frequently. Um, In the name of trying to get, you know, more technology that's going to help them improve their photography when there's some value, some real serious value to have sticking with the camera long enough that it becomes more automated, automatic about getting to these settings. Not something I plan to talk about in the show notes, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think an important point. Um, okay, we're we're gonna talk about uh, light meters and the the exposure triangle being flawed potentially. We're gonna go through some more points that Edward has in this really good article. I love this article. They'll post it over Petapixel. But first, we need to thank an epi- uh, sponsor of this episode.
2: If you're anything like me, and you're looking for a professional printing service to turn your photos into canvas prints, you want someone who's reliable, who's using the highest quality canvas, and who is affordable. Well, good news, Royal Canvas is all three of those things. They print in 11 colors, use premium canvas that doesn't crack when it's stretched, and they ship super fast, usually within two or three days, of ordering. Plus, if you ever need to contact them, you'll be talking to a real person who can help you out with accurate information and resolve any problems quickly. With Royal Canvas, you're getting a premium quality canvas, archival ink, and an expert stretch. So go ahead and give it a try. Go to royalcanvas.com slash master and you'll get 40% off of a single canvas print and an additional 10% off of poster or metal prints. Or if you'd like a sample, feel free to email service at royalcanvas.com and they'll send you a free canvas color swatch. That's royalcanvas.com slash master for 40% off of a single canvas print and an additional 10% off of poster or metal prints.
0: All right, Brent, we're going to talk about... Is a light meter required? He goes through quite a bit. Um, I mean, the article is not all that long, and he dedicates uh, probably about half of it talking about the various uh, light meters that he's kind of used over time, uh, and and how important that that kind of is. And and I kind of I understand where he's coming from because our cameras today we have the light meters sure, but they're not really measuring the EV of a scene. That's not the point of them. Sure. They, it's not something they can even do. Just technically, there's, there's a difference to it. Um, and so, as you read the article, did you take away from it that he is arguing a light meter is required if you're going to do this quadrangle kind of approach?
1: Is it required? Well, that I guess... I, I guess I'd have to go reread it with that in mind. I, I don't know that I would say it's required, but it's certainly going to be helpful because it mentions the use of a certain type of light meter, and that is that being, an, uh, I think you mentioned the incident light meter or an external light meter, yep. however you want to call it. Right. And so there is a huge difference between that type of light meter and the light meters we have in our cameras, and what's going on there is uh, an incident light meter simply is reading the amount of light, is measuring the amount of light that is falling onto the subject and not reflecting off of that subject. Right, and right. I might even be able to say in your scenario of, uh, that we painted earlier where we're looking at the, the sun setting sort of in a couple of hours and we have football or whatever it is that we're shooting, uh-huh,
0: right.
1: do you have to get on field and measure it? Right. right there on field. No, because you have... You physically are going to be in the same light that your subject is in. So you just take a light meter pointing that thing towards the sun so you can understand how much is is uh, being... Uh, coming on to the subject itself. And then you set your camera accordingly. Um, but that's the that's also the type of light meter we'd use in a portrait studio. So if you're setting up your light, whether you're outdoors doing an environmental portrait or not, you're probably go- using a light meter that is an incident light meters because you're measuring the amount of light falling on the subject. And we can even get picky and say, you know, I want more light on one side of the subject mm-hmm. versus this other side of the subject on the head, whatever the case is. So we can get really picky and use that incident light meter. So we have an exact equation and exact ratio of how much light is falling in this part of the, the subject versus that part of the subject. But I might suggest there's a few ways to overcome this. And that would be fully understanding, wrapping your mind around that histogram, number one. And uh, number two is this idea of what uh, Ansel Adams uh, invented, and that is the zone system, the thought and use of the vo- zone system. And I don't think we have enough time to dive deep into it, but <laughs> right. what we're looking at, what we're looking at here with the zone system, and I would certainly argue it still applies uh, to digital photography, and that is, our cameras. Well, first off, we let me back up a little further. Uh, we we separate the scene into what we call zones, and those th- these are uh, exposure value zones or luminance value zones, where zone zero is going to be full on pitch black. Nothing is possible there to render as far as detail. Yeah. And uh, zone. Uh, 10 or 11, depending on which one you want to use, uh, that's pure white. That is uh, zero detail on that, on that side of things. And so zone 5 is right in the middle, and that is what our cameras are trying to reach as it relates to the exposure they're trying to get at. But what happens when you point your camera to one of those bright clouds? you're going to have the camera try and make that zone five, which is right in the middle value, which is middle gray. That's a problem. So how do we deal with this? Well, we have to adjust according to the zone system. How many stops brighter do we want to make that? And of course, this we got to make sure we are absolutely zooming in on that cloud. We're absolutely spot metering or zooming in or whatever it is off of that subject. So if we you know, look at various subjects, you know, maybe you have the side of a building and you're like, hmm, that would be one stop darker than what would be a middle tone. So I'll just zoom in on it, get a reading, set my light meter to negative one, and that's a good exposure for right. that subject right. because it's exposing it properly. So we can look at these things and be able to say, okay, with the equipment I have, how can I look at this and interpret it? If you don't want to go the zone system route, just take a look at your histogram and start to understand what that means. Dark's on the right, bright's on the, on the right, excuse me, dark's on the left. And... When we say exposing to the right, you know, we can use the histogram as an idea, too, to say, if we're going to put more of our emphasis in those areas, and I had Greg Benz on the Latitude podcast, and he put it perfectly, and that is, pay attention to your highlights. Don't overexpose something that is important to you. So if something is important to you, just watch that and make sure that doesn't blow out.
0: But at the same time, it's fine if there's a really bright cloud in the scene to have that cloud look white. That's okay. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, we got to have it look white because it feels unnatural otherwise. Yeah. It's just depending on does what does white mean. Does white mean blown out in zero detail or does white mean light and fluffy yeah. and it feels you know soft and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So we can look at it both ways with either just the zone system if we don't want to look at our histogram and do a bunch of chimping or if we want to go ahead and take the time, look at our histogram yep. and say, okay, this is this is how I can dial that exposure in.
0: Yeah, I think you could come away from this article um Thinking that that Edward's like a a curmudgeon, doesn't like digital and thinks we've all gone, uh, you know, lazy. We're not doing things the proper way. I don't believe that's the, the... That's not what I took out of the post. Why, I still really, really like the post. I don't feel like yeah. that's what it's going to be. But you could see where someone might, might think that's the case. And and there is an argument to it. Uh, digital cameras have made photography far more accessible today than it was. I, I don't know that I would have been significantly interested in cameras and photography if I, was, if I had to shoot film and that's all I had. <laughs> if that's the only uh, option. Um, I wish
1: I could get you in the dark room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe I'd like, it, but i don't know if it would have appealed to me right off um now yeah. now that i'm i have done as much as i have it might be appealing to me but I, right. I don't know if i would have entered into it anyway it's it's digital is has made it more accessible it's made it more affordable and i can see the point where he's saying we have a lot of photographers we have an entire generation of photographers who they actually don't even have to understand the triangle let alone the quadrangle right. and and we there the photography industry is being hurt by it because there are people that don't know how to even start with light and how are we going to capture the light record the light so that it's achieving the creative objectives that we've got and and I do think he was suggesting we can't really do this without a light meter but I don't like you Brent I don't think that that's strictly true I think you can still have a really solid understanding about recording light and and how it is that you can do that with a digital camera with the tools wow. that are built into the camera. The light meter gets you close and understanding the, the different metering modes on your camera which I have a Photo Taco podcast episode on that if if that's something that, that you need then uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to it about that. Um, then then you, you really do have to be able to understand that. How can I use how do I get the most information out of the, the light meter built into the camera so that I can sure. get, get close and get started. Or like you said how do I maybe focus on the very brightest element in the scene and decide how it is? I want that element to be exposed. I'm okay. Maybe going a little bit to the right of zero on that, that, uh, that highlight, being careful not to kill it and, and, and uh, blow it out. But, uh, but how do I use my light meter to figure that out? Or like you said, histogram is a vital tool that I'm constantly using all technical sure. aspects and details that go into the equation of helping you to figure it out. And, and the more you use them, the, like any tool or anything that you're learning, the more that you use it, the more automatic those decision processes can be. And now you can focus on the creative elements and understand kind of almost intuitively what it is you want to do, how you're going to change either the triangle of elements or uh, use your light meter and, and histogram to help you get there they're all just tools and all helpful to doing it. So I don't think a light, an, a, an incident light meter external to your camera is required for you to, to do this quadrangle approach, but it's certainly going to take some experience. It's going to take some time and a lot of shooting to uh, to really kind of get there and understand it. All right. Now, the last point before we end this episode he makes a statement in here really strong, <laughs> really strong <laughs> about the exposure triangle, calling it flawed. So here, here's what the statement is. He says, the exposure triangle concept is flawed, not only in that it overlooks the most important ingredient in photography, But it is also flawed in that the sides do not correlate in any meaningful way. In other words, they don't tell you what exposure to use, which makes it, well, by definition, rather useless. It only deals with the camera controls and does not deal with light levels. So, Brown, what's your reaction to that statement?
1: So, my initial reaction is to say I don't think I'd go so far as to say it's flawed because to say something is flawed, we have, I guess we certainly would say we have certain expectations that come out of what it is. So if it's not doing what you need it to do, you know, we need to find another way. And I think that's what he's talking about here. He's finding, trying to find another way. It does do a good job at helping photographers understand the relationship between those three basic controls on the camera, though. And for that, I think it's a, a success. Uh, I do like the quadrangle approach because of how important light obviously is. But to say that this is flawed, I believe in my opinion anyway that it's a bit of a stretch. And I have a little bit more on that. So here's why. And that is we have to start somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, And we end up making to begin with as photographers, we end up making rather uninformed decisions when we first start out and we certainly mess up Sure. and hopefully we learn. And then we start making informed decisions as it relates to the settings based on the light. And then we grow and we start coming up with other adjustments to achieve our creative intent. So to suggest that we need a system that needs to tell us where to start. Well, that's what teachers are for. That's a little shameless plug here. (laughs) Uh, but really, anyone can be a teacher in this, in this respect. So if you don't know something, you know, please don't be afraid to ask. Uh, ask someone, and maybe they don't know it either. Maybe they do know it. Uh, if you do know something, certainly please, please feel free to share that with those uh, that are asking and those that need it.
0: And I'll put a plug in here for our Facebook group for that. So we, we're, trying, oh, we're trying very hard to have our Facebook group be a place where listeners can, can go and hang out and feel fully entitled to ask questions, no matter how, where you are on your photography journey. If you're at the beginning end and most of this episode has made you feel like you don't understand anything about photography, that's fine. Just go ask questions where we're trying to facilitate or, or have a community there where Every question is fine. Every question is you should feel comfortable asking, and we want it to be like a, a really safe environment for everyone to ask questions, no matter what topic it is. If it's super technical, I hopefully will be able to help you and and try to make it something that's uh, that's going to make sense. If it's uh, more creative, there, we we have lots of folks involved that have lots of different levels of exposure to photography, and I have yet to see really anyone in that community actually will will. Kind of boot them out if, if it ends up being a problem, who <laughs> are, are saying, hey, that's a stupid question or belittling people for asking questions. We're, n- we're not going to let that be how that community is going to go. So go over, go to Facebook. Uh, if, if you do Facebook, it's a really great resource. If you're a listener and you haven't joined our Facebook group, go to Facebook.com and search for Master Photography Podcast and go join the group. You do have to answer a question. I still see people asking to join the group where they didn't answer the question. And unfortunately, that means we can't let you in because we want listeners. You're going to have to say the name uh, of host of the show. So Jeff or Brent will work for this show, but you can do Connor and Erica and Brian, and Nick, and there's lots of, of names that you could put in there so that you can get in. And then as soon as we see that, we'll let you in, but we want to keep the spammers and the bots out. And uh, so we, we have to do that. And unfortunately in the world we live in, that's, that's just a necessary thing. Um, I even approved one that said Lord Page." Lord So
1: that, that did actually happen. So
0: <laughs> that, that proves they're a listener right there. That's yes, excellent. Yes. Yeah, if you don't know what that is, you're going to need to go back a few episodes. Yeah. Three, three or four episodes. You might pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. All right. Um, one final thing that he he does conclude his article um, in, well, he, he gives a suggestion for people and uh, he does say, look, the quadrangle will also be flawed just like the triangle. If you, don't have some way to have uh, a method for telling you what your exposure settings should be. And maybe this is why I'm saying the triangle is not fully flawed because we do have something that's helping us with that in our light meters. Yes, it's reflective light meters in our camera. Yes, you have to understand how, how metering modes work so that you can have that tool be useful to you and provide you valid information to go by. But it is helping you to figure out what your setting should be to get a good exposure. So what, what he's suggesting is uh, a free PDF that you can download. It's called Andy's handy exposure calculator from Andrew lawn. And it's a little PDF document. You can go print it out. And when you, after you do, you can like cut out a few shapes out of the printout and glue them together. And it makes, it looks sort of like I, I get the, the best way I can describe it is like a slide rule that helps you to do exposure values for, different ev values uh, different shutter aperture and iso values for various ev settings and if you don't know what a slide rule is because i'm sure there's lots of (laughs) listeners who don't you're just gonna have to go check out the pdf i don't know how else to describe it um you have a better way to describe it brent
1: it's a handy tool that's a good starting point for for understanding these things and i think that's where the author is suggesting you know these things are flawed because they don't tell you where to start with where to start at uh, we we need to have some kind of suggesti- suggested starting point, and this tool gives you that. It has little diagrams about uh, this type of situation, that type of situation, and you just slide it up and down, and it gives you good starting points for what your exposure should be. So, uh, yeah, it actually might be something I used in class. There you go. It, it looks
0: pretty good. So I, I do like the approach. Like, this is a way to say we're going to start with light. That's where we're starting on this. But this, you would have to have a, a light meter to really make this be effective because you have to start with an EV value, and sure. you, so you got to know what EV you're facing when you're when you're out shooting. And uh, so you would have to have the light meter and then you'd have to have this little slide rule thing. And yeah, I I like the concept of it. I don't think you have to go all the way there in this age. We have the tools we need right in the camera to be able to get good exposures. You got to learn how to use them. There's a lot of of learning there and you got to get experienced with it. Uh, Even as you upgrade cameras, the way that the tools work for you in that camera, the way exposure comes out, the way dynamic range and ISO is going to function, that's going to be different if you upgrade your camera. And now you're going to have to reset a bit and you're going to have to learn how to deal with it now that you have a different tool in your hand than you did before. And uh, so there's a little adjustment there to expect. So I, I like the approach. I really love the emphasis on light. I think I need to make sure I include that a lot more as I teach photographers how to use their cameras, and and I, I like it a lot. I, it's a really fascinating topic. I, I love it. I just don't think I'm all the way with him <laughs> on light meters and slide rule things, and and uh, saying that you've got to do change a lot of things differently. But the emphasis is really good. I like I like it. Yeah all right let 's close up the show here with our doodads of the week i 'm going to start off here i have i 'm going to recommend the anchor powerport power strip It runs about thirty five bucks on Amazon. And it's a twelve outlet power strip. The thing that's that I like best about it and why I got this recently was eight of those twelve are perpendicular to each other. So it solves a problem where in my office I have uh, I have things that I'm plugging in where the plug I'm putting into the outlet is so big it like covers the next outlet on the power strip. And it's a common problem I have with lots of power strips. They're all kind of in line so that when you put a, a big plug on one, it covers the next one and makes it useless. So that you can't get anything plugged into the next one. This one has some that are split out, uh, not split out. They're they're facing the other direction, and so a big plug won't cover any any other outlets. So I liked that. Plus, it has three iq usb ports to charge up devices fast that are usb powered which a lot of things are are increasingly there's things that are usb powered in my office so i need those so i love it it's, it's a good value solid product i love anchor stuff so there's my dude out of the week brent what do you have
1: yeah that looks good um i have a book and it is perfect exposure we've been talking about exposure an awful lot uh, by the author Michael Freeman, and it's available anywhere books are sold. But I, I have one of the, the, the previous, it's been updated since the, the one I read, and, and it's just, it goes through so much detail about just understanding every, all these things about exposure and, and what to do. And I think it's,
0: uh, it's portrayed in a, in a great way. So that's, that's my uh, doodad this week. Perfect. All right few reminders before we're done here, masterphotographypodcast.com. It's the home for the show. You're going to find the show notes there, the links to the articles, the doodads. You're going to want to go hit that up. Facebook group we talked about already. That's Master Photography Podcast. And you can find my work at jsharmathphotos.com or or my other podcast where I go into a lot of the detail of these tools. We've been talking about histograms and metering modes and so on phototacopodcast.com. You can go search for those topics and you'll find episodes on those kinds of things. Uh, Facebook, I'm Harmon Jeff, Twitter, Harmon underscore Jeff, and Instagram, Harmon Jeff. Brent, where can people find you?
1: Uh, Facebook for sure. Uh, I've got uh, the Latitude Photography Podcast group. I've got uh, a Brent Berkham photo page and Brent Bergen photo tours group. If you're interested in the tour information workshops, that kind of a thing. Uh, com for my regular website and LatitudePhotographyPodcast.com and two things I've got on the website. Actually, I should say one thing. Uh, I do have a a workshop tour in Croatia, and what I might throw out there, a lot of these things we've been talking about, like the things I have in class and whatnot. If you want those worksheets and you want to have it be like a class, by all means, sign up and we'll just make it a class, and you can and you can uh, you know have these assignments as it were, or we can customize assignments. Nothing nothing wrong with that. I'm about to release one to uh, Chile for the total solar eclipse that's happening there. I'm just talking with some tour guides on Easter Island. So we're going to see about going to uh, the mainland area to grab the total solar eclipse, and then we'll fly out to hopefully uh, Easter Island. It's still in the works. Uh, We would be there in wintertime, and they're all like, you know, you're coming in winter. You have the risk of rain and the like. And I'm like, well, as long as it's not a typhoon, I think we're going to be okay. So (laughs) um and if that's up for you, if you're up for an adventure, then, you know, I want you to consider that because I think it'd be a lot of fun. So uh, we'd just be spending three days on Easter Island and a couple of days uh, scouting around and looking at uh, what we would do for that total solar eclipse. So oh, Sounds so uh, fun. Details are coming out. It's probably, hopefully within the next week. We're here in about the middle of October. So hopefully in the middle of the, the next week
0: I'll be able to do it. Very good. All right. Well, we're going to close up the show now. We want to thank everyone so much for listening. I want you to get out there and keep mastering your photography and we will see you again in another seven days. are you still there i'm here hello do you not hear me (laughs) are you still there i'm still here
1: (laughs) okay i guess we'll have some editing to do yeah (laughs) shoot you got some really good
0: blur shots that's where i heard you last okay